Today we are looking at the doctrines that are being proposed to us in the Word of God in chapter 14 of the book of Revelation. Now, there, are been, there have been many things that have taught already in this apocalyptic book. As a matter of fact, there are seven complete visions presented in the book of the Revelation. We are now in the midst of the fourth vision. The fourth vision is found in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Now, this particular vision we're looking at can be described as different types of warfare between Satan and Christ, between the devil and his helpers, the Antichrist, the false prophet, those with the mark of the beast, against the church of Jesus Christ. And so, we're looking at chapter 14 today, which is near the end of this fourth vision. And this particular chapter can be divided really into three different sections, and we're going to take the first section today. And so if you recall, we started off with this vision with a vision of a woman and the dragon, where the woman was going to have a child. And the child is Christ, and the woman is the church, and Christ ascended up into heaven, and then a war was waged, and uh, Satan was cast out of heaven. Christ is now reigning there, but the devil comes down to earth and continues the war with the church. Then we saw a beast rise up out of the sea, out of the water, and we learned that that was the Antichrist, the governments that Satan was able to, shall we say, uh, uh, create in order to have a uh, uh, an authority and powers against uh, the, the people of God. And then we saw a beast or a lamb rise up from the earth, a false vision, or shall we say a false Christ in that he is a false prophet. And they, uh, this particular, uh, the lamb that was, came up out of the water is Satan-inspired ideologies, Satan-inspired false religions, uh, atheism, all the different ideologies that would supply support to the first beast or the governments to have the world follow them. And now we are in that last section in chapter 14 of this vision where we see a vision of the Lamb on Mount Zion. Now, this Lamb is going to be a contrast with the Lamb that rose up from the earth. Remember that the false prophet, and nowhere in this section, in chapters 12, 13, and 14, are we going to see the term false prophet, but we will see that later. Later in the book of the Apocalypse, where it's, uh, it's absolutely clear that this particular beast is called the false prophet. And so I'm going to name him the false prophet from here. And so looking at the first five verses of chapter 14, we're going to compare them to the last eight verses of chapter 13, because they're given in contrast. They're given for us to compare one to the other and to see what the differences are. So, in this particular chapter, I would like to give you the basic outline, and then we'll concentrate on the Lamb that is on the mount. So, the first five verses, we see the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. We also see the people of God that have been sealed with the Lamb's name and with the Father's name. After that, we see four messages from three angels and a voice from heaven. 
The first angel comes proclaiming an eternal gospel. The second angel comes declaring the defeat of Babylon. And then the third angel comes declaring that the followers of the beast will receive God's wrath. Finally, there is a voice from heaven. It is a call to the saints to endure. Lastly, in that chapter, we see the reaping of the earth, where a sickle comes to the earth and all of God's people are reaped. And then all of the devil's people are reaped. We see the difference there in that the good grain is gathered and put into the garner for God's people. But the clusters of grapes of wrath are put into the winepress of God's anger into his cup. So that is the way this chapter is lined up. So let's begin by looking at the first five verses. <clears throat> Let me read verse number one to you from chapter four, 14. Then I looked and behold. Now remember that we had in the beginning of this book many times a vision and then we heard something. John was saying, oh, I heard someone say that the line of the tribe of Judah. But when he looked, he saw a lamb slain from the foundations of the world. Well, here we see, I looked and behold. Now, verse number two begins with, and I heard a voice from heaven. And so, once again, we're going to see that an apocalyptic vision will give to our eyes one thing and to our ears something quite different, but it's a different viewpoint. And so let me read again. And I looked and beheld, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So, what are these people? Who are they? What is Mount Zion? And who is this Lamb? And I think you have some of the answers already. Now, the idea of Mount Zion has been mentioned many times in the Old Testament. But many, almost all the times that this word is mentioned, it has to do with an, a city and a place that is not yet. Now, the idea that we see something that is and yet not, is not quite yet is real common in prophecy. In other words, Jesus Christ is king right now, but he's not king the way he's going to be king in the future. It's going to be even fuller. The idea that he reigns in the hearts of his people is that's what it is now. But there'll be a time when he reigns truly all things from the throne that's in Zion, or shall we say in heaven, or when the new Jerusalem, which is Zion, comes down from heaven and the new heaven and new earth is provided to us. And so we see that Mount Zion is a good place, a special place. It's called many times the city that is... Uh, that has the foundations are not made by men. The foundations are laid by God. It is the city where perhaps uh, that this, this, this mountain is referred to as the place where Abraham sacrificed his son or the place where Christ uh, went up to into the temple or where the temples were built. This is a, a, a place that has many, many different references. But right now we're looking at the idea that Mount Zion is the place where Jesus Christ is reigning. And how does he reign? We see on Mount Zion a lamb. Now I believe that we can all understand that this is truly the lamb of God. Now I want you to think in your hearts and minds right now what we just learned in chapter 13. We're out of the earth rose up a, a lamb. And this lamb coming up out of the earth is compared to this lamb that is on Mount Zion. 
and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Or shall we say, it is reigning in our hearts today. And so there is that comparison. But I want you to understand that this is a, a covenantal relationship established in our hearts and minds where God has covenanted with Christ to save us. This theme that we're going to look at in these five verses has to do and, and is centered around our redemption. And so when we think about that, we think about Zion, we think about the different covenants that God has with his people, because Zion is that place where God's people will be with God. God's people will be with God in Zion. And so when we see the Lamb on Mount Zion, we see him surrounded by his people, 144,000. Now, don't be confused with this. You'll have all different types of uh, teachings where people say, well, these are um, special evangelists. One day will be in the future that will live in a seven-year tribulation. Or these are people that uh, they're going to be residing in heaven and everyone else resides on earth. These are all different errors. I would like to have you remember what we talked about this, what we taught in chapter 7. Remember in chapter 7, where angels were sent out. They were sent out to all the earth to destroy and to pass judgment. But one angel said, do not go and do not do no harm to the earth until this angel goes to all of God's people and places his seal upon their heads. After God's people are sealed, then you may go. What we have, and, and we saw that there was 144,000, the very same number. We saw 12,000 from each tribe. But immediately after that, we saw that there was an, a number that could not be numbered of these people from every nation, from every tongue, every place. And they were the very same people. And so from God's perspective, the elect of God, the chosen of God is a specific number, and he has all of them. He's going to find all of them. He's going to seal all of them. He's going to save all of them. And from our perspective, it's a number that cannot be comprehended. It is without number. And so we see that all these people, God's people, are around the Lamb on Mount Zion. This is a, an overall perspective. It goes from the beginning when Christ ascended to heaven, and it goes to the end when Christ comes back in this chapter 14. Right now, Christ is the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, ruling in the hearts of all his people. Now, from this perspective, we're going to see that some people are in heaven before the throne, and some people are on earth. That's the idea behind this. So who are the people? They are God's people. They are the elect of God. There are some that have already gone to heaven, some that have already been, died in the faith, and they are now in the presence of God. But there are some of us who are still living in the flesh. We are strewn around the earth like diamonds in a dunghill, and the gospel comes and seeks us out, takes us out of the ground, takes us out of the dung, and cleans us up. And why? Because we're diamonds? Because of our beauty? No, because God has made us that way. God has put his seal upon us. What we were before has been changed by a change of nature within us. We are no longer just cursed dust. We are no longer the dirt that God said, the ground shall be cursed because of your sin. Do you see the covenant that was there, the covenant made with Adam? No longer are we the cursed ground, but we have been made something different. 
If we looked at the different covenants in the past, the one we had with, Od- with Adam, we can see that we have a new Adam, don't we? A new Adam. If we looked at the covenant that we had with Noah, that the earth would not be destroyed by water, we saw that we have a new Ark of the Covenant, shall we say, an Ark that lifts us up from the judgment of waters. If we looked at Abraham, how there was a covenant with him, and all the children of Abraham are God's children, we know that God is our Father, that Jesus Christ is the one who begets us. He is the husband. We are the bride. If we looked at the Moses covenant, the one where the law came to, sub, to, to suppress sin and showed us the shadows and types, we can see that Moses was that great intercessor. And now we have Christ, the great intercessor. And then we had a covenant with David where he was the king. But we know that Jesus Christ is our true king, don't we? Mm-hmm. And so we see that all these covenants were like the everlasting covenant. They showed us the nature of the everlasting covenant in a certain way. And put all together, we have an understanding of what the everlasting covenant is going to do for us. We have a second Adam, where he is our federal head. We have an ark that we can go into and be safe. We have a father who begets us from heaven. We have an intercessor that pleads our case before God. And we have our king that rules in our hearts. All these represent the everlasting covenant of God. Let's go to the next verse. Verse number two. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders that no one could learn except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, the ones that have been redeemed from the earth. That is who these are. Let us not forget this. This is not a group of people that you may, you may hear that the Jehovah Witness say, well, these are the only ones in heaven. Or you may not hear like, like from the book from the late great planet Earth that these are super evangelists. They're going to be the, the bodyguards of the Lord when he comes back during the millennium. None of these things are, are true. What we have here is a picture of a complete number of God's elect. Why? Because they are the redeemed of the earth. They're the ones that have been bought from their sin. They're the ones that are on the earth listening to a great voice coming out of heaven. Consider this great voice. It's like the roar of many waters. There is this power in this voice. It is like a a, a thunder. It's like rolling across the earth. Even though it's powerful, and even though it roars across all of the earth, even in it, we must know that there's a difference in this type of voice because it is a musical voice. It is the voice of a harpist, or it is a a sound of music. Now, this is something special. Music is, to me, uh, one of the greatest experiences that the human heart can, can really can, can have experience because it is something that is unique that is only done by God's creatures who have his image or the angelic creatures all those that know about the beauty of the virtue of God they can sing and make music and so these voices that are there they're singing a song of redemption these are the voices of those that have already been redeemed that are in heaven And there's two things going on here. This is a song that's being sung, but this is also a song that is being taught. 
There are those that are standing in the presence of God, redeemed by his blood. And we also have the idea that they are being heard by those on the earth. And some on the earth cannot understand it and cannot learn it, but some on the earth can. Some can. Now, this is an interesting presentation of this truth. For one thing, I would say, if you recall in the book of Hebrews, we have what's called the Hall of Fame of Faith in chapter 11. And we, we can read about all the different men who have died in the past, all the different women, all the different people of God who have endured things, who have had their children raised from the dead, who have been put into the deserts and, and have been made destitute, who have suffered, who have been uh, given opportunities to serve God in a great way. All these testimonies come from those people that are now standing before God. And it is that testimony and the Word of God that teaches us that we hear their voices singing before God because it is the song of thankfulness. It is the song of redemption. It is a song that can only be sung with sincerity. And therefore, only the elect of God can hear and learn that song. This is what's happening in these verses. It is a new song. A new song. We read in the, uh, the epistles of the Apostle Paul about the mystery of, 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 of wickedness. But there's also the mystery of the gospel. And in the word mystery, it doesn't mean it's something that we don't know. It just means something that's been hidden, that has been revealed. And so what we now have is that we understand that the wickedness that is in the hearts of men is going to be overcome by the light and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the song that is going to be sung. The gospel of Jesus Christ that is received in the hearts of his people. Let's go to verse number four now. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for the Lamb, and he, uh, <clears throat> uh, first fruits and the Lamb. And in their mouth is no lie. And was found, and they were are blameless. Now, let's take a look at this. This uh, we see something in, in verse one. It says we have a lamb on Mount Zion, surrounded by his people. And then the rest of the verses here describe why these people are following this lamb, and the characteristics of who they are. Number one, they're described as virgins. Now, do not. Confused, get, get confused with the idea that these are physical virgins. Remember that Paul said to, his, to, his, to, the, to the church, I'm going to present you to Christ as a chaste virgin. That This is the people of God. This is the church of Jesus Christ. This is a spiritual relationship. A relationship between the bride and her husband. A woman and a man. Or shall we say the church and our Christ. And we are being presented to God as that chaste version. Why? Because later on in this chapter, we'll see that Babylon is fallen. And Babylon, as we'll see in the future, in the next few chapters, Babylon is also called that great harlot or that great prostitute. And those who follow the beast, those who have the mark of the beast, those who follow the instructions of the false prophet, in worshiping the image of the beast, they're the ones that will commit whoredom with the prostitute. 
But those who follow the Lamb of God are virgin. They do not get defiled with the woman of this world, with Miss Babylon, if you want to call her that, with the harlot of Babylon. So we are virgins spiritually, that we do not go away from our husband. We do not live in adultery with our husband, Christ. We serve him as a chaste and loving wife. We are virgins. We follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And we see him standing on the hill. We see him there. And if he goes, we go with him. We follow him wherever he goes. And we are the redeemed from the earth. It's called the first fruits. Now, if you would remember your reading in the Old Testament, the first fruits is the very first part of the harvest that is taken and brought into the temple. It belongs to the Lord. The rest of the harvest belongs to the people. They put them in their own barns. So if we want to look at it this way, shall we look at it like this? All of the earth, the first fruits are God's people that are collected and harvested and given to God. The rest belong to the earth. Shall we say the first fruits are all of God's people and the rest, they belong to the earth. They belong to the beast. They belong to the false prophet. They belong to the dragon. And so the first fruits belong to God. So let's go and see what kind of practical applications we can get from this. I can see three things that we should probably take a good look at. I wanted to compare and contrast the images that we see in the last part of chapter 13 to the first part of chapter 14, those two sections. And then I want to take a look at this song once again and have another look at what this new song is all about. And thirdly, I'd like to take a look at the characteristics of the redeemed once again. So let's go and take a look at this first section. If you would read again chapters 13 verses 11 through 18, you will see that this is the description of how a beast rises up from the earth and how this particular false prophet gives credence to the Antichrist. And he is described as a lamb, as a lamb. Now, let's compare that lamb with the Lamb of God. There is the central person there. In these verses, compared to those verses, there's one central person, and that is the Lamb themselves. Number one, both lambs are presented as something that's harmless, something that's kind, something that's gentle. I mean, how many of you have, have you know, if you follow football at all, you would say, has any football team ever been named after a lamb like the Detroit Lambs, you know, or, you know, the Chicago Lambs, you know? I mean, no one would ever have that type of idea that they would say, I'm going to have this rough, tough, tumble, well, rugby and football type team and call them the Lambs. I don't think so. The idea of the image presented here is that this is someone that would not harm you. You could cuddle up to him. You could feel warm with him. You could have a, a relationship that is endearing to them. And so we can see that both want to be seen this way. One, Christ is that way. But the other is a deceiver. In contrast, the false prophet designs to destroy the saints as Christ has designed to save them. 
That is the great extreme contrast and comparison. They both look the same, but one designs to save, the other designs to destroy. Now the next thing to compare and to contrast would be the very positions of these people, of Christ and of the false prophet. The positions. Our Christ is standing on Mount Zion. Now, it doesn't say that this is a great, big, giant lamb that overshadows the earth. No, it's just, it's just a lamb. As a matter of fact, on Mount Zion, you may have to look to see where he is. And so, this is a, an, an image for us to say, what does this mean, this lamb that's on this mountain? On this earth, from our perspectives, the hearts of our people see our Christ as this lamb. The one who cannot be seen by the world, but we see him as one who is standing there. The false prophet, on the other hand, comes up out of the ground, out of the earth. The cursed earth, shall we say. Because we know that when Adam sinned, God said, Cursed is the ground for your sake. Have you not wondered why God did not look into the eyes of Adam and said, You are cursed? No. He actually said, the ground is cursed for your sake. And you're going to work at living. From now on, it's by the sweat of your face that you will live. And that's what we have done. We live by the sweat of our face. We work because the ground produces nothing but thorns. What we have been made from, the cursed ground, everything about our nature, we water our hearts, we tend our hearts, we try to cultivate our hearts, and what does it do? It produces thorns. We can't get anything good to grow out of us. And yet, this is where the false prophet comes from. He comes from the earth. He comes from the same materials that we are from, but not our lamb. He is a lamb that is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone, but he is the pure nature of God coming down from heaven like Zion coming down on the earth for a new heaven and new earth. And as that lamb who stands on Mount Zion as compared to the false prophet who rises up from the very pit of the earth, the pit of hell. So that is their position. Now the actions that we want to take a look at. What are the actions of these two? One has a song of redemption sung to him. And the other has the people worship the beast. Do you see? That's the activity there. The activity is that this lamb teaches us by the spirit, by the truth, who our redeemer is and what he's done to save us. And he puts within our hearts and our hands, that is, what we know in our hearts and minds to be true, we do with our hands. But then when that is done, it also provides, that's the reason that the words come out of our mouth. The words that come out of our mouth. If you'll notice, one of the characteristics of these people around them is that they have no lie in their mouth. And so what about the other people? We have some that are singing the truth about our redemption. And no lie is in their mouth. And yet the others have nothing but deception fed to them. All the ideologies of the false prophet is that there is no creation, there is no God, there is nothing true about all this, and they give this type of power and authority to the governments that rule you over you, that tax you, that have their dominion over you. And so we have that different type of actions that are done. Now what about the conditions of those that follow both lambs? 
the lamb that comes that, that stands on Mount Zion and the lamb that comes up out of the earth. What are the conditions of the followers? Well, for one, they both offer freedom. They both offer freedom. One offer freedoms from sin, but the other offers freedom from God. Would you like to be free from God? It seems like there is, uh, people are making this more and more clear these days. They say, Christians, they just want to um, make your life miserable. They just want to suck all the joy out of life. You can't do this. You can't do that. Everything about being a Christian is just horrible. That is what they're offering. Freedom from these restrictions of you just having a good time and enjoying yourself. Freedom from God is what's being offered by the false prophet. But on the other hand, the lamb that is on Mount Zion offers freedom from sin. Freedom from sin. And so in contrast, the followers of the lamb is redeemed from their sin. But the other lamb, the one that comes up out of the earth, he is the one that actually enslaves them to their sin. Feeds them with their sin. Makes their chains even stronger. The next thing I want to show you is that there is ownership involved here. Ownership. Every lamb, the lamb on Mount Zion and the lamb that comes up out of the ground, they own their followers. They have their brand on them. They have their mark on them. One has the mark of the lamb and the father. And you can see it because it comes out of their mouth in truth. And so they both have their marks upon them. One designs to save them. The other designs to destroy them. The very mark itself is the method and the way of turning their hearts to the Lamb. Whether the Lamb of the false prophet or the Lamb of God. Because when God, through the Holy Spirit, takes the truth. Now you see what I'm saying? Those are the means of grace. The Word of God and the Spirit of God. And when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, takes the truth and He puts it onto a heart of a man and presses it into him, He is marked with the image of Christ. And His heart loves God, loves Christ. And He learns this new song. But the other, they become like the beast. They become like the dragon. And so, we also see that there is an awareness of these followers. You have the follower of the Lamb that rises up out of the earth. You have the follower of the Lamb on Mount Zion. Both lambs inspire their people to follow them. Both lambs inspire their people to praise them. And they speak highly of their master. The people of this world speak highly of their ideologies. They even are proud of their ideologies. They love their ideologies. They love their false prophets. They love their falseness. And we love our Christ. We love our Christ. We sing to our Christ. We know about the truth of our Christ. And our mouths are filled with the truth of the gospel. Whereas the mouths of those who follow the beast are filled with lies. Now, that is a comparing and a contrasting of what we've seen at the first of chapter 14 and the last of chapter 13. Now let's take a look at this song. This, these five verses in, this, in chapter 14 have a lot to do with this song. To me, music has always been, and I'm telling you, you know, I'm not just making this up, truth, music has always been a fascination to me. I'm not a musician, I can't play very well. I mean, I can't play anything, I can play the radio. 
if I can find the right tunes I would like to listen to. But music is something I really enjoy. I love to listen to good music. And uh, nothing is better than good music, and nothing is worse than bad music. You know? And that's just the way things are. God has made music in such a fantastic way. There's a lot of math in music. You can have octaves, and you, and you can, you know, maybe, and I'm not too sure about it, but if you take the wavelength of the amplitude and you double it, and you have different octaves, you have different harmonics that blend together that actually make, you know, overtones, and, and then these type of things really touch us. They touch us. I can't believe how much a violin can cry like a human voice or can, can make, uh, you know, the tones of a trumpet can almost like the shout of a soul and, and the different types of musical instruments that blend together that, and all the different parts. Everything about it is just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And then you take this other form of communication that we call words, like what I'm using right now, and we can, we can write something beautiful. But if you take something beautiful that's written down and you compress it and you turn it into a, uh, like a syrup, like a honey, and it come, becomes poetry, then you take this poetry and you blend it with music. And what do you get? You get a song that rises up out of a person's heart and it blesses the ears of those that hear and it receives a great honor. And so I would say one of the greatest things that the, the, you know, the 144,000 can do is to sing praises to God. And one of the best things that can be done is that we can take the witness of those who have gone before us and learn that song. Because no one can learn it but us. No one can really have the heart embrace the great work of redemption and can sing from our hearts gratitude, love, dedication to God. No one can do that except God's people. They will not. Now, you can take the world and they can mimic the song they can't sing it from their hearts. They can't truly be grateful. And you know what God hears? He hears with a heart that knows gratitude, not just lip service. He knows real love, not just to be seen by men. He knows what it is to have the heart rise up and sing, to have the true poetry of the mind and the heart put to the, to the tune of, of heartbreaking and heart-loving and joyful tones and, and these things. Even if you cannot carry a tune, your heart can. Your heart can. Even if you cannot even verbalize how you feel, the groanings within it that cannot be uttered comes from the sincere feelings of your heart. And so even if your death tone, and even if your words come slowly, it is God who hears that song that cannot be taught to anyone except God's people by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. This is a tremendous song. It is a new song that only those can learn if they are God's people. This is something that is a tremendous blessing to us at this time, that we should be able to serve God in worship, in worship. So remember these things the next time we sing a song. May your heart be true in all the things that it feels. May the words represent you. May the tones of your voice cry out to God in thanksgiving and in true admiration and love. So let's go on to the third one, the last one, the lessons that we can learn by the characteristics of those redeemed. They're redeemed by a description saying that they are like virgins. 
Well, he actually goes on a little bit more and say, they have not been defiled by women. I know that sounds like, well, you mean women are the ones that defile men? No, no, no. The idea here must be understood that God's people are not going to be defiled by the prostitute of the world, of those that are presented by the false religions. So I'm going to sum it up in this, in, in this one phrase. They are pure. Okay? They are pure. So when you think of this word virgin, when you think of the idea that's being presented here, it means holiness, righteousness, purity, and a relationship with our God. That relationship, the pureness of that loving relationship. Then it says that they follow the Lamb wherever they go. In an essence, it just means this. We are obedient servants. Amen. We are obedient servants. And so we have a pure heart relationship serving God. We are obedient servants. And then it says that they are the ones who are redeemed from mankind, the first fruits of the earth. It can be boiled down in this phrase. They belong to God. We belong to God. That's who the 144,000 are. Those who have a pure love of their relationship to Christ, who serve him because they love to serve him and they belong to God. And now the Apostle John in his revelation and the description of the 144 takes those three things and can bind it down into one idea. And that is this. They do not have any lies in their mouth. They are blameless. You see, we're not blameless because we are completely innocent. We're blameless because our Christ died for us and redeemed us. Amen. Do you see the song of redemption? The song of redemption that we should sing from the hearts, the hearts of people that truly trust Christ. They believe in Jesus. Later on, we'll get to that point where it says, this is a call for endurance. Those who trust and believe in Jesus. You see, that's the key right there. Let's not, let's not try to, uh, to put things upon this and saying, let's figure out the big puzzle. No, let's just take a look at the great truths that are there presented to us. We have a song being taught to us from the saints of heaven, from the very word of God itself. And the spirit of God is teaching us the heart of gratitude to sing to God, to express to God, to pray to God. May all of our prayers be sweet in his, in his presence. May all of our thoughts to him be gentle and kind and, and full of gratitude. May we learn to worship our God like that among our people, corporately, privately, all that we do to glorify our God. And so in conclusion, we say this. Satan has a plan to destroy the people of God, but God has an infinitely better plan to save his people. Mm -hmm. Satan has recruited and groomed helpers to aid him in carrying out his plan. He has an antichrist. He has a false prophet. He has those that have actually been marked because they have his very image in their hearts. They all work against God. They all work against Christ, and they will work against us. But what we have in contrast is that we have a lamb the Lamb of God who stands on Mount Zion. And we can see him here, see him there with the eye of faith. We know that the other image comes out of the earth, but we know that our Christ comes from heaven.
that our Christ comes with the image of God, the image of God. Christ is the expressed image of God. We were made in his image. We were designed to be his image bearers. That we should not worship any other image. We are forbidden to do that. But we have the image of God that shall be put upon us. They have his name, his mark. The mark and the name of his Christ and of his Father. And so with that, there is a song to be sung by us. There is a song to be learned by us. It is the song of redemption. It is the song of the gospel. May we truly learn it in our hearts and may we sing it and may the gospel be preached in every church, in every place, in all of the city of Titusville, around the world. May the gospel be heard. May Christ be lifted up and honored and may sinners be saved for the glory of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll have our Lord's table. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and for your patience and for your gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would give us this grace and that these things might be done for glorifying to you. And now at this time, we ask that your Lord's table bring us into remembrance of all the things that our Lord has done for us, how he shed his blood for us, and how he gave his own body to take us and to, uh, to take us from hell and death and to put us into your presence. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen.